Good morning. Please open up your Bibles to John chapter 8. You can find that on page 893 of the Bibles provided. And we'll be starting in verse 31. I'm sorry, that's 894. Verse 31 of John 8, and we'll be reading to the end of the chapter. Before we do, I want to start with a question. And that is, what makes a true Christian? This is always an important question, and one that we talk about a lot here. We've talked about it through our sermon series on James, and it comes come up even in our series through Ecclesiastes. It's one of the questions the Word of God continually confronts us with. Are we truly following Christ? But it's an especially important question for us to have a good answer to during this time of year, during our annual Christmas celebrations. Many Christians understand that this time of year is a time to train our hearts to look forward to the coming of Christ. And so in that light, we should ask, why did Christ come? And when Christ comes again, what will he find in my life? We need to ask these questions because our interest in Jesus may have little to do with the reason he came. We may appreciate Jesus for his example of love or some of the good things he taught. We may like participating in Christmas celebrations because they remind us that we're not alone or maybe there's more meaning to the world than we usually see around us. We might like a lot of the things about Jesus and Christmas without ever really confronting the reality that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. As we speak to our neighbors who are perhaps unbelievers or considering the claims of Christ, they may like a lot of things about Jesus and Christmas without understanding that Jesus came to save people from their sins. They may not understand that not only did Jesus come, but he also is coming again. And he's coming to gather those who trust in him and to judge those who dishonor him. True disciples of Jesus rejoice that Jesus came and look forward to his coming again. This morning we're looking at a passage from John chapter 8. Again, we're looking at verses 31 through 59. And in this passage, Jesus is all about describing what a true disciple is. And he describes a true disciple as one who holds fast to his word. A true disciple is one who holds fast to Christ's word. So let's read this passage and listen to these words of Christ. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Listen to God's word. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. 
They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is God's word. As you probably noticed, except for the very last verse, this entire passage is a dialogue. The only action that takes place is at the very end when they pick up the stones and Jesus surreptitiously exits the temple. This is a back and forth conversation and it really is a conversation that goes all the way back to the middle of chapter 7 when Jesus makes a surprise visit to Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths. This was, a, this was a Jewish festival that God ordained that was kind of an annual harvest festival for his people. By this point in his life and ministry, Jesus was kind of a known quantity among the common people and the religious leaders. So people were even kind of whispering about him before he arrived. Where is he? Then he arrives on the scene and goes to the temple and begins teaching. And so in chapter 7 and 8, we see a prolonged dialogue 
And we see a lot of different responses to Jesus in those passages. We see some people are simply curious about who he is. Some wonder aloud, is he really the Christ, the promised one who would deliver God's people, Israel? The vast majority of the religious leaders thought he was a dangerous blasphemer. And they looked for ways to discredit him and even to arrest him. But we also see in verse 30 that some of the Jews, many of the Jews, believed in him. And so in verse 31, that's whom he starts addressing. In chapter 8, verse 31, we see he talks to these Jews who had believed in him. The surprising thing then is that there's so much confrontation between Jesus and these so-called believers. Now, it may be possible Jesus is interacting with, again, this broad group. So maybe he begins addressing these Jewish believers, but then skeptical Jews sort of interject and, and take over the conversation. Clearly, there was this mixed group there before Jesus. But the New Testament scholar Don Carson argues that this conversation really is between Jesus and these believing Jews, or these so-called believing Jews. And his reason for saying this is because this idea of sort of fickle believers has already been introduced in John. So we don't have to go back too far to John 6, verse 60, where Jesus has just fed the 5,000 and he's had a long teaching on what it means for him to be the bread of life. And we read that after hearing this teaching, many of the disciples say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then six verse later in John six sixty six, we read, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So maybe that John is kind of exploring this, these people who claim to follow Jesus, but then are offended at his teaching. And we see that here as well. But really, wherever you come down on who Jesus is talking to, the point of the message in John 8 is the same. Jesus wants people, especially those who profess to follow him, he wants them to understand the true mark of a disciple. The true mark of a disciple is that if you hold to Jesus' teaching, you are really his disciple. If you hold to Jesus' teaching, you are really his disciple. That's what he says to believers in verse 31. If you abide, which means if you remain or hold on to my word, you are truly my disciples. So to kind of dive in and to kind of put ourselves up against this definition of disciple, what I want to do is, is pick out five statements Jesus makes, five words, five teachings of Jesus from this passage, and ask, are we holding to Christ's word? Are we listening to and following the Jesus who came and is revealed to us in Scripture, or are we trying to follow the Jesus of our own imagination? So we're just going to walk through five sayings of Jesus. I'll just give them to you one at a time and trust that you will know when we switch from one to the next. So the, here's the first one, the first statement, the first word from Christ. People are slaves to sin. People are slaves to sin. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Throughout Jesus' teaching ministry, especially in the Gospel of John, we see him say, truly, truly, I say to you, as a way to draw special attention to whatever comes after. And we have three of these truly, trulys in our passage. In this first one, he wants our attention fixed on the problem of sin. 
those who practice sin are enslaved to sin. The word practice here doesn't have any special meaning as if Jesus is talking about really bad sinners or sinners who sin a lot. Jesus is just saying that everyone who sins, everyone who commits sin, is a slave to sin. Now remember that Jesus is speaking these words in the temple in Jerusalem during a a holy feast, a feast ordained by God. So his audience is a bunch of religious people, people who have made a point to be there in Jerusalem during this feast. Again, he's probably directly addressing at least some who say they believe in him. So Jesus' words about sin here are to people who intend to be moral people, upstanding people, God-fearing people. So I'm going to go so far as to say that this message about sin is especially intended for people like us here in this room. Everyone who sins is enslaved to sin. That includes all of us. Jesus wants us to hear that. If we're, to go, if we're to hold fast to Jesus' words and be true to Jesus and be true disciples of Jesus, we need to believe his verdict on sin. Sin enslaves. Our selfish actions, our lack of self-control, our words spoken in anger, our lustful thoughts, our lying words, our greed. All of these things are sin and they enslave us. We typically acknowledge you know, sin is bad because it makes us guilty before God. And maybe we understand even a feeling of guilt. We, we experience, I feel guilty because I did this wrong thing. And that's true. But have you considered the way that sin enslaves? Sin is powerful. One sin easily leads to more sin. So there's no middle ground with sin. You can't just dip your toe into the swimming pool of sin and say, well, this amount of sin is safe. That's not what Jesus tells us. Everyone who practices sin is enslaved to sin. Jesus' conversation partners are offended by this. Going back to verse 33, after Jesus first alluded to their slavery by saying they need to be freed, they responded, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Now, these Jews aren't ignorant of their history or even their present situation under Roman rule, but they believe that their link to Abraham, their spiritual lineage, means that they are spiritually free. They believe they have no spiritual bondage. Now, we don't know from this passage exactly all that they understood about their own sinfulness, but whatever their understanding, they reject Jesus' teaching about sin's slavery. In other words, they believed that their sin problem, whatever it was, was no big deal. When it comes to Jesus' words about sin, are you like Jesus' conversation partners? Maybe you can't say, Abraham is my father, but you might say something like, well, I was born and raised a Baptist, or I'm not that bad of a person. How do you tend to downplay sin's grip on you? A few verses before our passage in, in John 8.24, Jesus warned that those who rejected Jesus would die in their sins. Jesus' word, his teaching that we are to hold fast to is, sin enslaves and destroys. Jesus says that sin is our biggest problem. It's the problem that he came to solve for us. He came to set people free from their sin. 
There's no benefiting from Jesus without understanding this. Do we see ourselves as needing to be freed from our sin by Jesus? Sin enslaves. It deceives us into thinking that it can satisfy us. And in our sin, we get defensive about our sin. We're unwilling to admit the way we fail and the way we disobey God. And if we remain in our sin without trusting in God's saving work through Christ, sin will finally destroy us. The reason the Christmas story is good news is because Jesus came to save his people from their sin. Right? That's what the angel says to Joseph. Why did he name him Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sin. Well, Jesus' words here describe something that Christians feel even as we follow Christ. So even though we know ourselves to be decisively freed from sin, sometimes we still feel ourselves giving in to particular sins and, and we feel like we are in sin's enslaving grasp, don't we? We keep committing the same sin over and over again and feel powerless to change. Jesus' words remind us that sin is powerful, that it has this enslaving nature, that sin's enslaving nature is nothing to toy with. So when we feel that way, we're feeling something real. It should call us to fight against it with, with all the resources of the gospel. It should make us ask, how am I fighting with Christ's power against the enslaving power of sin? We don't fight in a defeated way that there's no hope. We fight because Jesus came to set us free. How are you fighting against sin's enslaving power? How are you tempted to give in to it? So Jesus' first word here is that sin enslaves. Do you hold fast to this word? Do you believe that Jesus is telling the truth about your sin? The second word from Jesus, the second statement is that sin distorts our perception of truth. Sin distorts our perception of truth. So our sin isn't a superficial problem. It's a systemic problem. It infects us from the roots. We have a problem of our ability to knowing, even know what's true because of sin. And it stems from the way our, our hearts are tuned to hear certain voices and unable to hear the true voices of God and Jesus. Look at verses 37 and 38. Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. What I want you to pay special attention to are the, the perception words. You know, our mind is maybe immediately drawn to Jesus talking about their father, and we know from verse 44 he's talking about the devil. But just for a second, notice the perception words. Jesus speaks of what he has seen from his father in heaven. He's seen something, and now he speaks that thing. The Jews want to kill him. They do what they do because of what they've heard from their father. They've heard it from their father, the devil. Listen to how Jesus puts it again in verse 47. Whoever is of God hears, perceives the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Do you see this link between our, our identity, our character, and what we hear, what we're able to perceive? Jesus is telling these Jews 
standing in God's holy city and God's house during one of God's festivals, they do not hear God. They do not hear God's words because they are not from God. God's word, God's word spoken through Jesus, he says, finds no place in their hearts. They are unable to bear it, he says. They're spiritually blind and deaf. They're spiritually ignorant of the words of God. Their understanding of the truth is satanically distorted. This theme of of being blind to the truth is one that you'll find in all four Gospels. So you have the the three synoptic Gospels and John. It's a theme from Isaiah chapter 6, where there's kind of a judgmental blindness pronounced on God's people. That they will see and not see and hear and not understand. And that's what Jesus is saying is happening right here in his presence. He sees and hears perfectly. He knows God. But these he's speaking to, despite hearing his voice, they cannot understand Do you see how deeply rooted our sin problem is? It's not that we just do a bad thing now and then. It's that we can't even hear what God has to say to us. We refuse to hear. We refuse to hear or to bear anything that would attack our sinful way of life. How does that strike you? How do you respond to what Jesus is saying here? Are you sensitive to his word? Do you want to run away from it? Or are you convicted by it? Perhaps even as you listen now, your heart is changing. You're starting to realize that Jesus is talking about you. Our sin problem is so deep that we need God's work to open our eyes to see his truth. We need God to open our ears to hear what he has to say. Pray for God to reveal his truth to you. Our need of God's truth is greater than we know. All of us need it. So you're speaking to an unbelieving friend who's investigating who Jesus is, or if you're here and you're investigating Jesus, you need to hear what he has to say. Your friend needs to hear what Jesus has to say. They need to pay careful attention to them, to to the words of Christ. You can encourage your friends. I encourage you to to ask the Lord to open your eyes and show you his truth. Gathering regularly in a church like this one is a great way to be exposed to the truth of Christ. You can hear it as the sermons are preached, as God's word is explained. And you can talk to people afterwards who want to help you understand the truth. It can help you understand what it means to apply it to your lives and follow Christ. You can read God's word for yourself in the scriptures. The antidote to our spiritual blindness is to keep listening to God's truth. Keep seeking it out and you will find it. Christians need to have our hearts regularly recalibrated by what God says as well. We need to develop habits of holding up our lives to the light of God's word. We need to guard against any dullness to God's word. So when we feel coldness to God's word and a lack of desire for it, that's, that's a, a good spiritual alarm bell to, to interrogate, to talk about with a brother or sister who loves you and who will pray for you. Our church has a role to play in this because the church has been given the job of proclaiming God's truth. 
So Christians fight against the deceitfulness and dullness of sin by gathering where the truth is preached. By gathering among God's people who will discuss God's word with us and encourage us with it and and counsel us with God's word. Christ's second word is that sin distorts our perception of the truth. It should make each of us ask, who or what captures my attention? Are you listening to God's word? Is your desire to hear the truth that Jesus proclaims? Or are you captured by other voices? That's our second statement. Sin distorts our perception of the truth. Statement number three from John 8 is that Jesus is from God. Jesus is from God. What's fascinating about statement number two from Jesus, that sin distorts our perception of the truth, is that the Jews in the temple there, in Jesus' presence, are hearing him speak. Right? Their hearing worked just fine from a physiological or auditory perspective. They, They could hear, but hearing they don't hear. They refuse to acknowledge Jesus' words for what they are, the truth of God. They refuse to recognize the gift of Jesus' presence. And it is indeed a gift. As deep and dark as sin's power is, Jesus' presence on earth is a sign of what God does to reach us in our sin. Jesus came. From God. In his great love for sinners, God sent Jesus to his blind and deaf people to open their eyes and unstop their ears. As a matter of fact, Jesus literally opens a blind man's eyes right after this scene in the temple. So he preaches in the temple about their blindness, and then he leaves, escaping their stones, and he stops on the way out and he heals a blind man who was blind from birth. It's an amazing scene. It's an amazing lived parable. And one of the greatest parts of it is the blind man's testifying about Jesus, and they keep pestering him and pestering him. He goes, why do you want to hear this again? Do you want to believe in him too? And it just makes them angry. God sent Jesus to preach salvation from sin. Jesus is from God. This is one of the most repeated things that Jesus says in John. So, again, we're to hold the Jesus word. And what does Jesus say? Again and again, he says, I'm from God. We see it several times just in our passage. So, verse 38, he says, I speak what I have seen from my Father. In verse 40, he refers to the truth I heard from God. In verse 42, he says, I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. In verse 54, he says, It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you do not know him. I know him. So Jesus is the opposite of the people who are made blind and deaf in our sin. On our own, we can't see or hear God, but Jesus tells the Jews that they're repeating the lies they heard from their father, the devil. But Jesus has perfect hearing. He has seen God. He has heard God. He knows God. And he has come to speak God's truth to anyone who will listen, anyone who will hear. Jesus came from God. Now, this is a key point that the Jews don't want to hear. And they cooked up reasons for dismissing Jesus. They accused him of being demon-possessed, and they accused him of being a Samaritan. 
So remember, the, the Samaritans are sort of a heretical mixed-race group that the Jews reject. They live sort of between Judea and Galilee, or among, among the region of Galilee. The Jewish culture valued ethnic and religious purity. And so by suggesting that Jesus was a Samaritan, they're suggesting that he has been disqualified by his very birth from saying anything with authority. This may be kind of a dig at Jesus' virgin birth. Like, hey, Jesus, the, the, you know, the events surrounding your birth are suspicious. Maybe this is why. Because you're a Samaritan and have no room to speak. They can't admit that he's speaking from God. They can't bear it. And so they have to come up with a reason for justifying their rejection of him. Now, Jesus confronts this head on when he says in verse 59. Not, I'm sorry, not, not, that's not right. I think verse 49. You dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He is the judge. The Jews dishonored Jesus. But God the judge seeks Jesus' glory. So here's the choice before us all. Option one. Receive Jesus and his words as God's gift of love to us. Trust that because God loves us, He's not left us blind in our sin, but has spoken the truth to us in Jesus. He sent Jesus to save us from our sin. That's option one. Option two, dishonor Jesus, the one whom God himself seeks to glorify, and face God's judgment. Those are the only two choices before every person. You see God's love for us in sending Jesus. Jesus is the antidote to our sin problem. He sees and hears what we cannot, and then he speaks it to us. We can know the true and living God by listening to Jesus and believing in him. Sinners can know God because Jesus has come to make him known. So if we blind and deaf sinners want to know what God is like, we don't have to wonder and look inward or look to philosophy or nature. We look to Jesus. If we feel desperate because of how our sin enslaves us and blinds us, we don't have to continue on in our blindness and slavery. All we need to do is to turn our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is from God. So listen to what he says. Look to him. That's statement number three. Statement number four is that Jesus came to set sinners free. Jesus came to set sinners free. Clearly, this goes with some of our previous statements about the slavery we have to sin, but it's good to make it explicit. If we're paying attention to Jesus' words, we we don't simply see the bad news about our sin, that we're enslaved and that we're blind. We see that Jesus came to bring freedom from sin. From the outset, this is what he says in verse 31 and 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then he makes this explicit. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The word that God speaks through Jesus is a word of freedom for sinners. The Son of God has come to set us free from our sin. There is deliverance for people enslaved to sin through faith. In Jesus and the word he proclaims. In verse 51, we get another truly, truly statement. 
This time Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This promise of deliverance from death is a promise from the deliverance from sin's ultimate penalty. Death is the ultimate symbol of sin's enslaving power. And physical death is like a big sign pointing to eternal spiritual death, what we call hell. So that's the promise of verse 51. Not that believers will escape physical death, but that even though we die, if we believe in him, we will not finally die spiritually. The promise is that we will have true life in Christ. We will escape that ultimate penalty that our sin deserves. This verse 51, this promise of never seeing death, comes right after the warning that we just looked at. The warning of judgment for those who dishonor Christ. So again, the promise here is that we will escape the judgment of eternity in hell. Which is what all those who reject Christ deserve... If we trust in him, if we keep his word, those who keep Christ's word are delivered from the judgment that we deserve. Jesus comes to those who wanted to kill him with a promise of forgiveness of their sin. The great irony of the gospel is that Jesus accomplishes this delivering work by being executed as a sinner, even though he has no sin of his own. So Jesus was executed by the very people he came to save. But there was no sin that anyone could convict Jesus of. It was all trumped up charges. But even so, Jesus willingly enters sin's prison of death. And he does so in order to lead a jailbreak. Look at how Jesus loves us. He willingly puts himself in the place of sinners. He took the death that we deserve... And then he rose from the dead. He broke the bondage of sin for us. His resurrection was the proof of his perfect righteousness. It was the proof that his death satisfied the justice of God. So the saving work of Jesus is the true word that Jesus came to proclaim. He came to proclaim his saving work. And if sinners trust in that work, we can be delivered from the power of sin. And escape its punishment. We can be free indeed because the Son sets us free when we trust in Him. Now it's tragic how we twist this good news. So Jesus comes proclaiming, believe in me and you can be set free from your bondage of sin. And just like the Jews here, we say, how dare you say we have a sin problem? Jesus comes saying, listen to me and you can know God. And we say, how dare you say we're ignorant of God? Jesus says, keep my word and receive eternal life. And we say, how dare you say we deserve hell for our sin? Friends, it doesn't have to be that way. Hear this good word from Jesus and hold on to it for dear life. In Jesus, we see God's heart for sinners. He's come proclaiming freedom from sin. Deliverance from death and fellowship with God. This is the truth Jesus came to speak. This is the word we are to hold on to. Jesus came to set sinners free. Would you be free? Trust in Jesus. We see the final word from Jesus in verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am. We see here that Jesus is God. That's the final statement we're looking at today. Jesus is God. Throughout this dialogue, both Jesus and the Jews have mentioned Abraham. Abraham is the great ancestor and patriarch of Israel. Israel exists because God graciously called Abraham and made wonderful promise to Abraham. And Abraham believed those promises and it was counted to him as righteousness. So both Jesus and the Jews recognize Abraham's primacy in the history of Israel. But Jesus has been pressing the point that these Jews in the temple really are no children of Abraham because they don't do what Abraham did. Namely, they don't honor Jesus the way Abraham did. In verse 56, Jesus says, Your father father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus is referring to here in Abraham's life. We know that Abraham was given many promises of God, including the miraculous birth of a son, Isaac, whose name means laughter. But the point is, the staggering claim that Abraham was honored to see Jesus' day, and it made Abraham rejoice. Jesus is not claiming that I saw Abraham. Jesus is claiming that Abraham saw him. Right? It's like the... You know, the dad joke, it's nice for you to see me. You know, that kind of thing. Jesus is telling the truth. Abraham rejoiced to see him. This is such a great claim. I don't think the Jews know quite what to do with it. So first they kind of swatted away with, well, you're just, you're not even 50 years old. What are you talking about? But Jesus won't drop the issue. And that's when he presses on with these most amazing words. Before Abraham was, I am. Again, this is our our third truly, truly Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. D.A. Carson notes that it would have been better and more grammatically correct for Jesus to say, before Abraham was, I was. He could have said that. But he deliberately, grammatically, awkwardly says, I am. And he does so to make it clear what his claim is. I am is God's name. The name that we read that he revealed to Moses through the burning bush. And Jesus takes it for himself. He is I am. He is God in the flesh. So he's not in the temple there speaking merely as a a rabbi or a crazy Galilean prophet. He is the very God who called Abraham out of Ur. He is the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He's the God who led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He is the God who gave the Jews their law and their place of worship and established the Feast of Booths that they were celebrating. And now their God stands before them in the temple, calling them to hear his words and once again be delivered from bondage. But they cannot bear his words. Instead of hiding their faces like Moses on Mount Sinai and Removing their shoes because they were on holy ground, they pick up stones to kill him. This is the great mystery of our salvation. That the Son of God took to himself our human nature in order to save us. So Jesus is not just a unique man sent by God. He is God himself. The speaker of the words this morning that we are called to hold on to, 
He is our creator. And his, his words here reveal that he would also be our redeemer. Our God calls us to hear his words and be delivered from slavery to sin and death. And it's only because Jesus is both God and man that he's able to accomplish this salvation. In chapter 2 of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us that the Son of God partook of our human nature, our flesh and blood, in order to deliver us from slavery to death. He says that the Son of God didn't take him to himself the nature of angels, but he became like us sinful people, offspring of Abraham, he calls us, in order to give us access to the mercy of God. He became like us in order to save us. We have a hope of salvation because God became man and he dealt with our sins in only the way that a man could, by dying for them. And yet, this work of Christ is the work of God himself. We read this wonderful passage from Hebrews 1 already. A passage all about the fact that God in these latter days has spoken to us through his son who is God himself. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is who the Son of God is. He is God eternal. Theologian Scott Swain explains this. In the Son, the radiance of the Father's glory eternally shines forth. The Son is the Father's eternal word and image, the exact imprint of his being. On the Son, the good pleasure of the Father eternally rests. The ultimate end in the Father's sending of the Son is that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father that the Son might have preeminence in all things. Accordingly, when the Son is acclaimed as Lord, the Father is glorified. When Christians speak of the doctrine of the Trinity, this is part of what we mean. We speak of the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, working in perfect unity to save sinners. And we see how Jesus, the Son of God in John 8, is about this work. He's sent by God the Father. He calls us to honor Him by trusting in His Word. Jesus calls, him, calls us to honor Him and worship Him as our God and Redeemer. And we don't honor Jesus and we don't bring glory to Jesus by adding something to Him that He doesn't have or giving Him some gift. We honor and glorify Jesus by receiving the salvation He has come to provide. We honor him by trusting in his work. We glorify God when Jesus becomes for us what he was for Abraham, our joy. We honor Jesus by rejoicing to see his saving day come. In Jesus, the day of the Lord has arrived. Jesus is the love of God for us. He heals our blindness. He forgives our sin. He raises us from spiritual death so that we can know God and fellowship with him. Because he is the God-man, he is the only mediator between us and God. Only he can give eternal life with God. The Son of God took on flesh so that God can shower his love upon us. Jesus has told us this morning that if we are truly his disciples, we will hold to his word. And these are the very words of God that he speaks to us. 
God's called us out of the depths of our sin and slavery to sin. He's called us to open our eyes and see, and he gives the power to do that. God proclaimed freedom from sin's power and penalty by faith in Christ. God has revealed Christ as the God-man sent by the Father to save us. Do you hold to these words? Do you keep Christ's words to you? There are a few more chilling scenes in the Bible than the final one we read about in John 8. The Lord of glory leaves his house because the children of Abraham have picked up stones to kill him. The ancient pastor theologian St. Augustine said of this, As man, Jesus flees from the stones, but woe to those from whose heart the stone God flees. From whose heart of stone God flees. Woe to you if you flee God because of your heart of stone. Is your heart hard or soft to God's word in Christ? In the Christmas season, we celebrate the coming of God in Jesus Christ. He came speaking these saving words. Are you listening? Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray for your help. Soften our hearts. We ask you, Father, to give us eyes to see the glory of Christ. We pray that if we are experiencing that enslaving power of sin, that we will know once again that Jesus came to set us free. We pray for your help as your church to encourage each other to look to Christ, to hear his words. We pray for your help to be bold witnesses to our neighbors. Help us to preach the gospel in the knowledge that you open blind eyes. We pray, Father, for you to display your glory through the saving work of Christ among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.